We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 4 now. And for the next few weeks, I want to talk about Jesus' strategy for evangelism. Now, Jesus is the essence of the Gospel. The Gospel is none other than Jesus Christ. It's not just what He did, but the very person of Jesus is the essence of the Gospel. And that's what we need to present to others so people can gravitate towards the person of Jesus fall in love with Jesus, and at the same time appreciate the fact that He died on the cross for our sins, and so forth. But now we want to talk about how Jesus actually engages in uh, evangelism. And so we find in chapter 4 the story of the Samaritan woman. I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, this story. The entire story uh, is uh, found in the text chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. But I'm going to try to break them down portion by portion, and today we're just going to study from verses 1 to 19. I've titled the message, Breaking Down Barriers. I think we're going to now engage in much more lengthy um, narrative and discourse uh, in the coming days, so uh, just bear with me as we read through them very quickly so that you have a sense as to what the story is or the teachings about, and then I will expound on them as much as possible. Okay, let's turn to the text, and let's read this out loud together. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Amen. In order to understand Jesus' encounter with this woman from Samaria, uh, here in chapter 4, we need to go back to chapter 3 
and see the Jesus encounter with Nicodemus and compare these two. And we see such a comparison, as a matter of fact, such a contrast uh, regarding uh, Nicodemus' background and Samaritan woman's background, regarding Jesus' way of interacting with Nicodemus and his way of uh, responding to the Samaritan woman. So we want to just systematically kind of go through uh, this uh, sort of a comparison of these two figures. Let's look at Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at nighttime. Okay? And he did that because uh, he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. Uh, he was a controversial figure, so he was trying to protect his own reputation by coming at nighttime. But the Samaritan woman, she just arrived on the scene at the very noon, uh, high noon time, in the bright uh, environment, she encountered Jesus. Nicodemus was a self-righteous man, and he had all the reasons to be self-righteous because he was at the top of the pedigree in terms of spiritual uh, elite rank, and also he was a Pharisee among the Pharisees, and he was a, really a law-abiding uh, citizen in God's uh, kingdom. And Samaritan woman, on the other hand, she had reason to be shameful, and she perhaps felt unworthy to encounter this great man that she would discover that she would even acknowledge him as a prophet of God. Nicodemus, he's the one who approached Jesus, perhaps because he was so self-righteous, he, he felt like, hey, I have something to show forth. I wonder if Jesus can give me a, a word or two to counsel me. But in the case of the Samaritan woman, it was Jesus who approached her because she probably would have never approached Jesus uh, regarding um, her issues or, or the fact that she was a woman and that she was a Samaritan relating to the Jew. Let's continue to compare these two. Nicodemus definitely had some advantages uh, when he was encountering Jesus or, or relating to anybody that he knew. He was a Jew. In the Jewish nation, uh, he, was, uh, he was a pure blood. He was a man, and that was a high status, especially in the patriarchal society in those days. He was a law-abiding Pharisee. So he had all the advantages that he could have. Kind of like Jesus. Jesus was also a Jew. He was also a man. And he was also a very spiritual, law-abiding person. But the Samaritan woman, woman had all the disadvantages. She was a Samaritan, and the Samaritans had hostility towards the Jews. The Jews regarded Samaritans like Gentile dogs. And she was a woman. So in a patriarchal society, woman is considered a very low caste. And she had a shameful past. She had a moral issue. So obviously she had all these disadvantages. Now let's consider how Jesus approaches these two. And that's also qualitatively very different. Because Jesus knew that Nicodemus came and approached him with his sense of self-righteousness. Well, Jesus shot right back and sort of cut to the chase and confronted him. Right away, right after Nicodemus starts commending Jesus, saying, Wow, you are, I can see that you are a great rabbi, a teacher. Power of God is with you. And God is definitely endorsing you. He was saying things to commend him. And Jesus just cuts in 
and says, you must be born again. All these good talks about laws and, and God having favor upon you. But the real issue is, are you born again? Do you have a whole new heart uh, that is transformed towards God? And uh, he had a very radical demand upon uh, Nicodemus because for him to say something like, Being, be born again, that means he has to change everything upside down. He had his, his life in a very orderly, structured way. He had everything together. He thought he was doing pretty good in his relation with God. But Jesus says, not so. You have to be born again, just like a, a little child being born into this world. And he couldn't understand that. But Jesus confronted him in such a way. How did he approach the Samaritan woman? Just the opposite. He was very patient. He was very sensitive. He enters into this dialogue with her, and very graciously invites her to this gift of living water. Of course, he does confront her at the latter part, but we'll see that that's not the first words out of Jesus' mouth. He was very gracious, very patient with her. So what's the result of their encounter with Jesus? First of all, Nicodemus we have nothing recorded of his response. Jesus ends it with his teaching and then goes on to this talk about the fact that he came uh, to die on the cross for us, to give himself for us, and those who would believe in him would have eternal life. And that was the challenge that he gave, but there's no recording of how Nicodemus responded to Jesus. But we see there are two other episodes in which Nicodemus seems quite friendly towards Jesus, or he's speaking on behalf of Jesus, but he's always in the shadow. He's always in the background. He never came for, out in the forefront saying, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and I completely commit myself to him. So Nicodemus is a, a very ambiguous fellow, according to the Gospel of John. But what about the Samaritan woman? Very positive. She accepts Jesus totally. She commits herself to Jesus. And then she actively engages in propagating the gospel about this man. She declares that this man knows everything about her. And that how he had offered this living water to her. So, in this story, what we're going to discover starting today is Jesus' strategy for evangelism. How many of you have a strategy for evangelism? How many of you have a heart for evangelism? How many of you realize that we must evangelize and witness to Jesus Christ? That's part of Christian life. I'm not talking about necessarily just reciting four spiritual laws or going to door to door and being confrontational with the people, you know. Heaven or hell, choose ye this day. We don't have to operate that way, but our life, all of our life must be a witness regarding Jesus. It can't be just my private, personal relationship with Jesus. It has to manifest. It has to shine forth in the sight of others. Others have to see that I know Jesus, that I have a relationship with Jesus, and I am for Jesus, and I'm committed to Jesus. Only then can they be drawn to Jesus or show interest to Jesus. 
So let's learn from Jesus some real important principles of evangelism. First principle, today I'll just point out two principles. First principle is that Jesus is in the business of breaking down the barriers. As a matter of fact, Jesus wants to break down all the barriers. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing. Just to give you a little understanding about the concept of barriers, usually in missiology, that is study of mission and theology of mission and methodology of mission, uh, we learn that, uh, that one of the biggest barriers that we face in evangelism is the cultural barrier and linguistic barrier. And so the great missiologist and mission strategist, uh, Ralph Winter, have you heard of Ralph Winter? In, in the uh, circle of missiology and theology, Ralph Winter is very well known as a, as a premier strategist. I mean, he, he's a practitioner. He has a science background, engineering background, and he, he's really well versed in the scripture and in theology. So he's constantly coming up with all of these theories. Of course, he's passed away, but uh, we are very much indebted to Ralph Winter. And he talks about E-scale evangelism. He talks about four different um, levels of evangelism. And it gets deeper and deeper as we encounter more and more barriers. Those numbers that you see, 0, 1, 2, 3, they are correlated with barriers that we see. Cultural and linguistic barriers we must encounter in order to evangelize. He begins with E-0 evangelism in which there's really no barrier, there's no real excuse not to evangelize, especially those people within the church congregation who may not be saved. Now, we cannot assume that simply because people come to church, they're all evangelized, they all have Jesus in their hearts, and they want to obey Jesus for the rest of their lives. Many people just come to church and they're just sitting in the pews, and we must be conscious that the world is right there with us, beside us, in the church setting, so we must witness to them. But there's no linguistic or cultural uh, barrier here. Not even the church culture becomes a barrier for these people because they, they have become used to so-called church or Christian culture. But E1 evangelism is now beginning to reach outside of the church. And the church sometimes becomes a culture. I don't really believe in church culture. I don't think that's necessarily Christ-likeness. But we all have traditions. We all have our stereotypical way of operation in the church. But we need to go out of the church walls into those lives of those people who are within our culture, within our language range. And these are the people for us, those who speak in English and in Korea, those who speak in Korean, uh, not too much gap in terms of culture. Someone in our workplaces, our family members, uh, our neighbors, these are the people that we reach out to. That's E1 evangelism because there's only one barrier, the wall of the church, so to speak. And then E2 evangelism obviously is talking about a little more uh, barriers, two barriers as a matter of fact. It's not just the church wall. When we go out into the world, we encounter uh, some cultural or linguistic 
uh, difficulties. And they may be, for example, like in different districts or provinces here in Korea, Gangbuk uh, and Gangnam. It could be cultural difference altogether. But I think it's talking about actually some people who are present here in Korea. For example, in Itaewon, uh, we may see uh, like the uh, Turkish folks who speak Korean. And they have become assimilated into the Korean culture. They speak in Korean. I'm going, wow, if I were to witness to them, what level of evangelism am I operating in? And it's probably E2 evangelism because they've come to my home turf and they're, they've learned the language. They're interested in Korean. They're interested in Hallyu as a culture. Wow, that's a connection. So all I have to do is just come out of the church wall and enter into their lives and break that barrier. E3 evangelism is what we call the full-fledged cross-cultural evangelism. That is actually going abroad. And you don't have to necessarily go abroad today. People may be coming. Diaspora, uh, ethnic folks are spread everywhere. But it's like going abroad. And we're talking about relatively large cultural linguistic barriers that we must overcome. So in missiology, we have all these theories about breaking down barriers. So in Jesus' case, what barriers did he have to break down? What barriers did he engage in actually penetrating and eroding away so that he can be transparent with the Samaritan woman and she to him as well? We're going to talk about three barriers. First of all, there's this ethnic barrier. Uh, you might even say racial barrier because what happened to the, to the Samaritans historically is very interesting. You know, Samaria is in the, the middle portion of the land of Palestine. Southern portion is Judea, and there's Samaria, and then there's Galilee. Okay? The Judean culture and Galilee culture was Jewish. But Samaria was situated in a place where they became so mixed in their blood and their, in their belief and their relationship with God that the Jews would have said they're illegitimate. They are not part of the covenant people of God. And how did this happen? Uh, as you know, the, the nation of Israel was divided between Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Okay? Southern Kingdom uh, comprised of uh, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin uh, were basically uh, in the line of King David. But the Northern Kingdom that broke away comprised of 10 nations. But because of their sin and idolatry, God brought judgment upon the northern kingdom first. And the Assyrians came and invaded them. And what they did when they conquered any nation, the Assyrians would take these people and transport them into all other nations. And so they got all dispersed. And then they would bring other people groups into this particular nation and get them to intermarry and bring their idols and so forth. So it was chaotic. So already there was this mixture that was happening and this assimilation of all different cultures, all different religious beliefs 
in this region of Samaria was happening. But in the 5th century, there was another uh, situation that happened. Under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, they began to rebuild the temple. They came back from the Babylonian uh, captivity, and they came, and then they began to rebuild uh, the temple. But what they did was, when the Samaritans wanted to contribute to the building of the temple, they said, we, we still want to be part of the, the people of Israel. Uh, they refused them. And so there was this sort of a, a hostility that remained to this day uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay? And uh, they decided, on the other hand, because they don't have the right to the temple in Jerusalem, they're going to build their own temple in Mount Gerizim. But in the second century, during uh, the follow-up to what is known as the Maccabean uh, revolt, and this was a revolt against the Hellenized influence upon the land. And what they did was they decided to invade Samaria, and they destroyed uh, the, the temple there in Mount Gerizim, and they des desecrated uh, that, that land. And so the Samaritans had all the reasons to hold on to their hostility towards the Jews. And just think about it. It's like the relationship between Korea and Japan. And even within our own land, the relationship between South Korea and North Korea. And you have this kind of enmity, the barrier that is there. And Jesus wanted to break that barrier. And that's why he, on his journey back to Galilee, he could have just crossed over River Jordan and go on the side of the east and then cross over into Galilee, but he didn't. He decided to just go right through Samaria because he obviously had a reason for some kind of encounter because he wants to bring the gospel to these people as well. Second type of barrier I think Jesus wanted to break down and he continues to break down is the gender barrier, the hostility between men and women. Men presuming that we are so much more superior than women, that we have certain rights, we have certain intrinsic qualities that makes us better leaders, and we should be at the top of the rank. And this is a patriarchal way of thinking. But even though Jesus worked within this kind of context, and even his apostles, and especially Paul, what we see in these uh, biblical our characters is that they would do everything possible in their context to elevate women. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He goes and actually starts a conversation with a woman. This is a no-no in those days. You don't even talk to your own wife in the public. You know, we see a lot of this in the Muslim cultures today. You know, Women are kind of veiled and they have to walk behind you. I was in... Um, I think it was in Indonesia. One, one time I was having breakfast in this hotel. And then uh, I was just really enjoying myself because there were a lot of Indonesian Muslims. And they basically dressed very simple with just a uh, sort of, what do you call it, a scarf over their heads. But there was this one woman dressed completely in black with a mask, with a net. And she was sitting there and her husband was sitting right across her. 
And I was getting really kind of upset over the whole thing because this woman is sort of in a prison. And, and, and I was so curious, how does she eat? <laughs> and, I, I, and I was watching very carefully and she would eat very discreetly like this. <laughs> While the husband is eating away, the woman is totally discriminated. I got so mad, but I couldn't do anything about it because that was a culture for this family. But Jesus would have none of that. He would reach out to women, and oftentimes even to women with reputation, which was exactly the situation in this woman's situation. Because I don't know how you're going to accept this, because even moral and ethical barriers must break down in order to, for us to reach out to these people. One of the greatest barriers that the Pharisees and the scribes and religious elites had was this whole issue of morality, the whole issue of ethics, whole issue of righteousness, holiness. Those dirty dogs, those impure folks, we should have nothing to do with them. But what was Jesus' way? Now, he wasn't immoral. He wasn't unethical. He stood for righteousness, but he had mercy upon those who weren't quite leading their life that way because they cannot change from their immoral ways to the ways of righteousness apart from somebody reaching out to them and bringing some new spirit of transformation into their lives. And so Jesus will reach out to them. It doesn't matter whether it was moral barrier or uh, unethical deeds. Because sometimes he would reach out to the tax collectors and they were the you know, traitors in the sight of the Jews. And he would reach out to the people who had issues in terms of morality. So Jesus, in order to learn about evangelism from Jesus, first thing we need to do is we must do everything possible to remove the barriers, whether it be cultural, be gender, whether it be class differences, whether it be regional differences, even moral differences, and certainly religious differences. We'll talk about more of these barriers uh, next time I present uh, the message. But second principle that we see from Jesus is that he engages in communication with this woman the communication that makes connection. How many of you realize just because we talk and dialogue and relate to one another doesn't mean we make connection. Well, we see Jesus, an expert in making connections. Now, you might say, did he make connection with Nicodemus? Well, he tried because Nicodemus had all these facades. He had all these smokescreen. And Jesus had to cut to the chase and get to the core. He was trying to connect. And I don't know how much Nicodemus might have responded to that. But in this situation, Jesus does it in such a sensitive way. His conversation and the way he induces this woman more and drawing her more and more into really inquiring about the living water that he was uh, saying. So um, Jesus was an expert in communication that really has a way of making connection at the core. And this is what the Samaritan woman, I believe, definitely sensed from Jesus. First of all, there was no prejudice or judgment from Jesus. 
Jesus saw everything. Jesus knew about this woman more than anybody. And yet, this woman must have felt so comfortable before the presence of Jesus. Jesus didn't come at demeaning or condescending. He didn't come looking down on her or being discriminatory. And this is the freedom this woman felt because Jesus was not prejudiced. Jesus was not judgmental. Second thing she really felt from Jesus was that Jesus was engaged in this interactional conversation. Not just one-way conversation. He wasn't giving a lecture to this woman. He was asking her questions. She was also asking questions to Jesus. It was an interactive conversation. And the final aspect of Jesus' approach to this woman was he offered to her what was relevant and necessary. She felt like this talk about living water really made connection. And next week, I'm going to talk about this. What was Jesus really getting at when he's talking about the living water? Why did he talk about the living water with this woman? But somehow she felt this connection. Yes. And I'm sure even Nicodemus, when Jesus talked about being born again, he didn't understand it. But I think it struck a chord in his spirit. And this is what Jesus does. His talks are always relevant, right to the core, and definitely necessary, because apart from the truth, these individuals would not be liberated. Apart from touching and, and performing that spiritual surgery in their hearts, they could not receive healing from their uh, situation of cancers. So what I want to do at this time, I'm not going to particularly uh, exposit or, or try to uh, analyze the text, but I want us to read this as a sort of a, a conversation between Jesus. So I took out all these uh, parenthetical statements because John, the apostle, the author, has a way of kind of interjecting his comments. So I took all that out and I just simply uh, wrote this out in terms of like a, dialogues that we see in a script somewhere. And so let's see uh, this conversation. How does Jesus approach this woman? Well, he starts off with a question, something that they can engage in. And basically, he's saying that, hey, listen, I need something for you. Can I ask you a question? Uh, can I inquire? Uh, can I request? And he says, can you give me some water? I'm thirsty. You know, this is the noonday, and, and this woman comes, and 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 he says, I need some water. Can you give me some water? And so the Samaritan woman says, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Okay. And this perplexed this woman because she couldn't understand why a Jew wants to have something to do with a Samaritan. Why a man wants to have something to do with a woman. Why anybody wants to do, have something to do with a woman with a reputation like maybe she came out to draw the water in the noontime, which is usually not the tradition. You come out to the well, not at high noon, but usually in the dusk or early in the morning because it's very, very hot and dry in that region. But maybe she was just avoiding the sight of others. Maybe that was her lifestyle. She was a woman of such a bad reputation that no one would will have anything to do with her. And then Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. You see, he poses this sort of a, an idea, a concept, throws it at her for her to think about, to chew on that concept. He says, you know, uh, if you knew who I was and that I could offer you something, uh, and that is like a gift from God, that is like living water. Here, the living water, water is talking about streams of water. You see, they were at the well where the water is kind of coming from the bottom, from the soil. But he's talking about living water, fresh water. And uh, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She obviously did not understand what Jesus was saying right there and then. But where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? We can see that the woman is showing interest. Wow, what is he talking about? He's saying he has secret knowledge of where this living water is. And then Jesus says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, you might say, well, just looking at the script, there's not much connection here. Suddenly, Jesus gives an exposition on the living water. He's obviously speaking in terms of some kind of metaphor, you know, in a spiritual language, symbolic language. But you have to understand, this is just a short excerpt of their conversation. Most of the writings in any of the narratives uh, in the biblical encounters, we have to understand them as short version. You never know what was going on between Jesus and this woman in their conversation. But by the end of this conversation, she says, look at this. This is how we know that somehow there was some kind of connection happening some kind of real dialogue happening, some kind of like, aha, I get it now. Because she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to your water. She got really excited. And it's like saying to a used car salesman, after all these conversations, yeah, I want that. Show me. Show me the deal. I'm very, very serious about that. Okay. Is that it? Okay. So, we will continue in our study uh, and probe a little deeper next time uh, as to what this nature of living water is about. So I want you to think for about a week what this whole thing about living water, the analogy or the metaphor of living water, streams of water is about. Compare different types of water sources. Compare uh, the difference between well water and the stream water. Between the water from the sky, like showers, rain, or like something that is bubbling forth from some spring source. And we'll talk about this more in depth. Amen. So today is not so much uh, an exposition. I just wanted to give you a little background as to all that's going on. So when you're reading the Bible, you don't just read the words. You got to understand the background. You got to understand the context. You got to understand the psychology. You have to ask the question and you have to 
read it with a sense of wonderment. And you've got to read it with a sense of imagination. Of course, with the reality constraints. You don't want to just imagine as a sort of fantasy. You want to be realistic. But within that constraint of reality, you can explore deep if you know how to imagine the story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story, the narrative of the Samaritan woman and her encounter with Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, even though we don't know all the details and all the conversations that, uh, that Jesus, you engaged in with this woman, just the gist of it, just what Apostle uh, John uh, recorded in this gospel, we get a sense that, Lord, you are the expert counselor. You are the expert discerner. You are the expert uh, surgeon who can penetrate into the depths of our problems and issues. And you draw out the best in us because you, you want to have conversation with us. You don't want to force things and you don't want to just uh, shove things and intrude in our lives. But Lord, you do want to penetrate deeper and deeper into our source so that you can have possession of our source for your holy purposes and reasons. So Father, uh, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who became incarnated and who lived his life amongst humanity. And you demonstrated to individuals like the Samaritan woman or Nicodemus to Nathaniel and all the others that we'll be encountering in this gospel. How did you do it, Lord? What message are you leaving for us? And how can we experience you like that in today's context? Show us the way, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.